In the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it states this, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17, we read this, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And with as much assurance as those verses give to us who believe, they pose a problem for those who do not. Namely, the problem addressed by this common question amongst even the body of Christ, and also in the complaint lodged against Christianity by non-believers. What about those who have never heard the gospel? Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Average Apologetics Podcast. I'm Corey, your Average Apologist. Today we are going to talk about one of those arguments that has never been, nor will ever be fully satisfactorily settled with the majority of believers, at least not within the confines of this created universe under our current set of circumstances with our current level of epistemological knowledge, our understanding of the intricacies and complexity of God's design. However, we are going to talk about this debate that exists not only within the body, the body of Christ, but is also commonly used by atheists, agnostics, all sorts of anti-theists and non-Christians as a common argument against Christianity. What about those who have never heard the gospel message? What about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? It's a sticky discussion, and a lot of people get their feelings hurt when debating it, but that's precisely why we're going to discuss it right here. But before we do just want to take a moment to thank all of you listeners for tuning in and remind you that if you like the content, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with everybody you know. The more people you share this content with, if you get some benefit out of this, if you enjoy the content, sharing it with other people is probably the single best way you can support this ministry. Now, one part of my reason for bringing up this topic is because of how it is used by non-Christians, how it's used by anti-theistic debaters to challenge the rationality of Christianity. You see, there are several common arguments that atheists and agnostics levy against the Christian faith, but only a few of them really delve deeply into some of these types of theological disputes that still hold many professed believers in a state of uncertainty. These arguments are often designed by the non-Christians, by the anti-theists, to pinpoint topics that have obscure or ambiguous scriptural basis as a means to confound the believer and give them pause in their defense of the faith. They pick these topics because, quite frankly, they're kind of a low blow. When you find something that Christians disagree about, well, that just makes sense, right? From a, from a non-Christian standpoint, or from especially from an atheistic standpoint, if you find something that the Christians disagree about, then that's clearly something you're going to want to use to your advantage. Now, of course, if you believe that assertions shouldn't require sufficient empirical evidence, or that 
reason can be based solely upon opinion rather than facts, then you might think that this tactic is the best. You might think that it is absolutely sufficient when arguing against Christianity. You might even believe that these ambiguous topics, the kind of topics that, that are used in, in these situations, you might think that they're settled simply by your opinion on them. Either case, of course, logically speaking, you would be falling into a trap. It's a logical fallacy to base your assertion on something that is either unsupported by factual evidence, that is to say, it is an appeal to emotion rather than logic, or it's insufficiently supported by a combination of empirical evidence and sound reasoning, at least enough so that you can claim that your assertion is reasonably factual. And we talked about the differences between truth and fact a little while back, how anything can be presented as a truth claim, but it cannot be taken on face value as truth unless it is sufficiently verified to be factual. And we do that through careful, objective analysis and critical thinking. Unfortunately, a lot of people operate solely upon emotion rather than through a sound mind. And even more unfortunately, many of those who hinge their worldviews and their rationale upon their emotional states are also among the body of Christ, those who are supposed to be able to defend the faith with a sound mind. But the mind is only as strong as its resolve to seek the truth, and those whose emotions govern their thinking seldom follow through in that pursuit. After all, it forces you to acknowledge your limitations and to acknowledge those things about God, about the Bible, about reality that you cannot adequately answer with absolute certainty, oftentimes simply because you don't have sufficient evidence on hand or you don't have the sufficient knowledge base to display your opinions on the matter with any degree of logical veracity, of verified fact-based reasoning. We can make claims, we can make assertions, we can declare our positions, but we cannot declare that they are the infallible truth. The only things that we can declare are the infallible truth are those things that are absolutely verifiable. Like I mentioned in the previous episode, truth claims may or may not be true. Regardless of emphasis, regardless of devotion, regardless of how much dedication you have to that claim, because without verification, we cannot defend those claims as factual. It's just opinion. It's just conjecture at that point. It can be a really good theory, but unless you can back it up, unless you can reason it out, then it's still just a theory. It's still just your opinion. The defense of the truth relies on fact-based arguments. Sometimes those facts are composed of empirical evidence like historical arguments of the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. We can go to the historical manuscripts, historical texts, and through in-depth textual analysis and multiple theistic and secular source materials, we can determine that the claims made about Jesus' life, his death on the cross through the traditional Roman crucifixion, and even his miraculous disappearance from the tomb, the empty tomb, and the multiple eyewitness claims of a, a post-death or resurrected appearance are all historically accurate accounts. 
Whether you believe that those claims are evidence of the supernatural or not is, is a matter of further study, but the text themselves, the text of those claims, proves the historical basis for his life, his death, his crucifixion of this man that we know as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter turned itinerant rabbi and reported to perform multiple miraculous feats. To deny the existence of the man Jesus is to deny the validity of textual criticism. It's to deny the validity of historical documentation. To deny the ability of human beings to preserve facts from one generation to another. All of which would cast doubt on any form of history that you're studying. In including you know, so some of the most popular historical figures whose actual existence is less than verified. Far less than verified in comparison. People like Alexander the Great. How many people doubt that Alexander the Great existed? Not that many. And yet how many people doubt the existence of Jesus? The motivations behind attacking disputed theological concepts due to ambiguity from the outside is dubious at best. If you're going to make claims against Christianity then and you want to be taken seriously, your debates are better held over evidence-based claims rather than internal disputes. But we know that not all debates against Christianity are for the purpose of enlightenment or the pursuit of knowledge. Just like not all defenses given for Christianity are for the purpose of enlightenment and the pursuit of knowledge. Sometimes people make a claim simply because they want it to be true. You can make a claim that you want to be true all day long, but it doesn't make it true. See, these, these arguments often don't originate from the position of a theological or knowledge-based determination, but stem from a fundamentally human problem. If you're just trying to make a truth claim because you like the truth claim because you wish that it were true, then you're actually looking at a moral problem. Because morally, you're claiming that your own opinions are the truth regardless of substantiation. Which, if we're being honest, that's an immoral claim. But, if you're interested in factual arguments, I want you to consider this. From the internal struggle throughout church history, there, there are a, a few primary arguments involved in this particular debate. The debate over what about those who have not heard the gospel? There's the argument of natural revelation versus specific revelation, the argument of justice versus mercy, and the argument of nature versus choice for the basis of condemnation. Now, depending on your theological beliefs, depending on your understanding of Scripture, you may already have an opinion on on these arguments. You may, you may have already thought these things through. You may even have a complete a completed determination, a conclusion on this overall question. But from a factual basis, let's just start with this first argument between natural and specific revelation and see what we can discover. So how is God revealed to the world? How does God reveal himself to human beings? Is it only from the Bible? Well, we know that statement can't be true. After all, in the days of the apostles, the New Testament as we know it was still being written. It was still being lived out during the days of the judges, the early Jewish kings, 
the prophets were still delivering new prophecies. During the days of Moses, well, the, the events of the wilderness, the events of Israel in the wilderness, the events in captivity, in bondage in Egypt, those things were just playing out. Those things were just happening then. Those were current events. And what about Abraham? One of the primary fathers of the faith, the primary father of the faith, post-flood. Abraham, he didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the prophecies, other than the direct word of God spoken to him in promise of, of the blessing upon his seed, right? He didn't have the Mosaic Law, which the Apostle Paul describes as the schoolmaster sent to teach humanity about sin and righteousness. Yet without all of those things, Abraham's faith, his faith in God, was counted for righteousness. So logically, we can conclude pretty quickly that the Bible isn't the sole source of God's revelation. And I know that flies in the face of a lot of, a lot of New Testament church teachings, where we emphasize the necessity of the Bible. And it is critical. It is essential. But it's not the sole source of God's revelation throughout the history of the world. We can also conclude that the prophets and preachers are not God's sole source of revelation either. That God can and will directly interact as he sees fit. In fact, he physically appeared to Abraham. They broke bread together according to the Genesis account. Now, you, you may say, well, well, Corey, you're only getting that information from the Bible. And, and yeah, you, you'd be mostly correct there. I am getting that information from the Bible. Because the Bible is our current primary source of information about the works of God throughout the human race and his plans for our lives. But that's not the only source. We read in the book of Romans, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. If the natural world... If the things that are made are understood to be evidence of God's existence and eternal deity, then that would mean that God literally reveals himself to us through everything. And, and frankly, I personally think that that itself is an understatement. just want to take a quick moment to thank all of you listeners for your support. I appreciate you tuning in and joining us here on the Average Apologetics Podcast. If you are enjoying this content, I hope that you will subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends, family, blast it on social media, let other people know. Because after all, the more people hear the podcast, the more people can potentially benefit from this content. Just look at the natural order around us. I mean, sure, there's the surface value, the beauty of nature. And I talk to people a lot about the, the beauty of the natural world. But look at the order of the natural world. The food cycle, the water table, the order of the elements, the cyclical nature of the seasons, and how all the natural resources that we use regenerate organically. I, I know some people will probably want to point out, we'll say crude oil and natural gas, see, those are, those are finite resources, but come on. Our knowledge about 
the natural resources is still fairly limited. In the grand scheme of things, we, we make claims in the public square saying that, well, certain resources are finite, they're going to run out, and they're somehow unnatural. But even plastic, plastics, the bane of existence for environmentalists, you, you, you know where it came from? It came from nature. It's, oh, it was synthesized, yeah, from natural elements. The, the whole point of, of material synthesis is to learn from nature how components are put together and to put them together on our own. That's to take the building blocks, the elemental building blocks, and to frame substances together. But ultimately, even plastics are derived from a combination of natural elements, including all these various minerals and alcohols and, and crude oil derivatives. Even plastic is essentially natural. It's just natural elements combined and reforged into a new format. Is it biodegradable? We'll probably give it enough time. After all, all things in nature decay over time. That's part of the second law of thermodynamics and the law of entropy. How energy never stays in the same place but dissipates and transfers from one point to another to multiple locations so that all natural things can only exist in their current form for a certain amount of time, depending on the energy contained within their cellular makeup. And when you think about it in those terms, all matter is just a form of energy being held together by something that science has yet to fully comprehend. But it happens to be something that we Christians understand or should understand, if you're at all familiar with the logic demonstrated by the writer of Hebrews. The 11th chapter of Hebrews, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Again, you have the invisible force forming the natural substance. All of these things in nature around us point to a higher power. They point to God. That's natural revelation. The sciences are just the observation of natural revelation of God. To the argument, is there specific revelation? Well, sure. God uses specific situations to reveal himself to us, like the preaching of the gospel, but fundamentally, he's already revealed to the entire world, to the entire human, human race, his existence through nature itself. And look to the cosmos. Look to the cosmos and tell me that perfect order does not exist in the universe. Perfect order, people that are far more intelligent than me have, have determined, must exist because of the radically exponential degree of accuracy necessary throughout the entirety of the cosmos for even one organic molecule to exist in its current state. That same state of order that anti-theists, atheists, claim emerged from a point of singularity amidst a vast emptiness of space and a big bang, like a burst of chaos from nothingness without cause, without creator, and just so happened to come together in such a way that life could exist, and it all did it by pure happenstance. You realize the chances are beyond slim. They're virtually non-existent. Let's look at the argument of justice versus mercy. If God is just, would anyone go to hell? That's the question posed from the appeal to emotion. Well, why do people go to hell? What's the biblical basis for souls 
condemned to hell. Why are souls condemned? Is it by whim? Is it by executive fiat? Does God just decide at random? Well, this, go, this soul goes to hell, and that soul goes to hell, and these souls go to hell, and those go to hell. Or is there a definitive order to that determination? Well, in the first verses that I brought up in the opening, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. According to that, it is the grace of God that delivers salvation, not our efforts, not our works. And that grace is apportioned based on one sole criterion, faith. I already mentioned the faith of Abraham. Even in the absence of the law, the absence of the prophets, the absence of the New Testament, and you know that means the absence of the name of Jesus, think about that. It was by the grace of God that Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness. Through faith, there is hope. Through faith, there is redemption. And that's been the consistent teaching of God throughout the history of his interaction with human beings. Sure, it appears that he also culled, eradicated armies, cities, entire civilizations along the way. But if that's your concern, shouldn't your question be, why those people? What made those people accountable for experiencing God's wrath in judgment rather than receiving mercy? In biblical accounts of thousands of people being killed at the directive of God, either through warfare, at the hand of his angels, through the pestilence in the land, what is the common, the common anchor that ties all of those individuals together? What's the common theme? So, well, some, some were Jews, some were Gentiles, some were faithful soldiers like those in David's army. Others were rebellious idolaters, outright unbelievers. Well, that sounds pretty indiscriminate, right? And look, if you're only looking on the surface level, sure, it, it's indiscriminate. But it's the same flaw that we see when we, when we analyze the racialization in America in the 21st century. If you view God's actions throughout human history as immoral you're failing to see the bigger picture just just consider this if god is righteous and his actions are just and that's how he describes himself to us all throughout historical christian and jewish texts and the natural revelation of god defines him as perfect order so logically he cannot do anything without reason or that is unrighteous he can't do anything without cause or anything that is immoral or evil on its own accord. There must then be a reason why human life would look so differently in the eyes of God than it does in our own. And that reason goes back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in direct rebellion against God. What was the purpose of that? What was the, what was the, the crux of the temptation? What was it that the serpent said to Eve? That if she ate that fruit, if human beings ate of that fruit, they would be like gods. In direct rebellion against God so as to make gods of themselves. That rebellious action stemming from the sudden uprising of their sinful nature, that 
is the reason why human life looks so differently in the eyes of God than it does in the eyes of human beings. It's because we are all sinners. We are sinners. And it's because we are sinners that a human life can last for a hundred years or for a hundred seconds and still look essentially the same in the eyes of God. We are his creation, his creatures, and yet we sin against him. It's for that reason that when God determined in the past to send his chosen nation to war, that the enemies, even though they already dwelled in the land, were still the oppressors because they represented something fundamentally evil. They represented the sin that had overtaken the human race and governed their every desire. And that sin was and is and always will be in direct violation against the righteousness of God. And that is precisely why justice is required. Because we are sinners, and sin cannot enter the holy place of God's presence, and we exist in a state of rebellion by nature, justice demands retribution. And yet, God also saw fit to deliver to us mercy. In spite of the necessity of justice, which is the required response to the sinful rebellion against the righteousness of God, God also desired to give to sinful human beings mercy. And that's why we have Jesus on the cross. That's why we have the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God, the only one who could fulfill the law of righteousness. Now for Abraham, his faith, his deliverance through the Son took the form of a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. For Moses, it took the form of the first Passover. For David, it took the form of the humble submission to God's judgment in spite of God's wrath being rightly deserved. In each case, it was the desire for the truth that paved the way to hearts being made righteous. Even when they did not know the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, some will still debate whether or not those who have heard the gospel have done anything worth condemnation. But, but again, that's an appeal to emotion and an argument that fails to comprehend the nature of sin. Like I said, we are all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no middle ground. We are not condemned because of what we have or haven't done. We are condemned because of our sin nature. We are condemned because of the nature of humanity. At least, that is the reality of God's true justice and the condemnation that awaits all souls who do not have faith in Him. Jesus told Nicodemus that those who believe are not condemned, but those who do not believe are already condemned because they have not believed on the, only, on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, if you're thinking, well, what if they haven't heard his name? Then they can't believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And, and you may bring up examples like isolated primitive tribes or nations that existed during times before the gospel could be spread efficiently. But you need to understand this, that God is just as richly merciful as he is just. And God is not a moral monster. But neither is God dependent upon the actions of human beings. So the spreading of the gospel is not God's only means of revelation. The biblical understanding is that no human being born into this world is without sin except for one, that being Christ Jesus. And because of the sin nature, all human beings who are born into this world are equally condemnable under the law of justice. God is not a respecter of persons. 
nor is he wavering in his delivery of justice. The only thing that assuages the wrath of God, the only thing that tempers it, that turns it aside, is his mercy. And his mercy is always available to those who have faith. So, what about those who have never heard the gospel? What about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Well, biblically, it's not a matter of what specific knowledge they have. It's a matter of whether or not they seek the truth. And if the very nature around us reveals the existence and purposes of God, then those who desire truth will find it no matter who or where they are. And anyone found wanting must not want the truth. And, and have you ever thought about this? Would a devout atheist like Stephen Hawking's want to be in an eternity in the presence of God? The same God he denied, the same God he railed against, the same God he rebuked, whose followers he rebuked for their faith in things that he did not understand. Now, you could, you could make the argument that since he is now dead, that his mind is likely changed if you're a believer in what the Bible teaches of the torment of hell and the grave for those who die in unbelief. But in life, if someone has no desire to know God or to be with God or to be in God's presence, would that be just to force that situation upon them, even if it were the only way for them to know true peace? If there's one thing, one thing and one thing alone that you were to know about God is that God is just. He doesn't act on whim. He doesn't condemn based on whim. He doesn't judge based on whim. It's all orderly. It's all in perfect harmony with his law, with his establishment of righteousness. And we've talked before about the law of God, about logic and reasoning, how all of these things, justice, how all of these aspects of God's design are extensions of his nature. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. I think we ran a little bit longer, may have, but this is an important argument for you to understand, both Christians and non-Christians alike. Because even though there is a biblically-based answer, it requires a little bit of thinking. It, it forces you to abandon the appeal to emotion in order to understand it. As always, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy the content. If you want to hear more, you can follow me on Parlor. That's at avg apologist on parlor you can check out the few videos i have on my youtube and rumble channels at average apologetics and until i can get a new workstation built i will be limited to audio only material which may work out better in the end who knows editing audio is much easier than editing videos for me anyway it takes less than half the time also if you want to support this ministry the first and most important way you can do that is through prayer and by sharing this material Share it with your family, your friends, on social media. Let's work together to spread the topics and information of this podcast to as many other people who may benefit from it as possible. Thanks again to all you listeners. Stand strong, keep the faith, and seek the truth in all things. Until next time, friends, God bless.